Morning, everyone. Fantastic to be together. Um, I might just underline that digging deeper, God's, God's book, God's plan. If you've never done it, revolutionary. Uh, just to see how the whole Bible fits together. It's one unfolding story. Fantastic stuff. Uh, let's pray, though. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, that we can be together, and thank you so much for your living word, the Bible. And we ask now, as we look at your word, please, by your spirit, uh, open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you in all your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had a moment of glory? You know, that, uh, that race, that race that you trained so hard for and the moment came in, you won. National champion, state champion, kindergarten champion. Yeah, that, that moment you can look back on, your moment of glory when your splendour was displayed for everyone to see. Or that promotion you got, you know, years and years of hard work finally recognised into the top job. And all your peers saw it and they gave you the recognition you deserved, your moment of glory. Or that time in high school at the bus stop, half the school's there, you're skating around and you just managed to ollie up onto the railing, slide five metres down the railing next to the stairs and land it. And everyone's like, whoa, your moment of high school glory. Now, some of you will have uh, moments of glory. Um, others, like me, will have moments of anti-glory. So <laughs> I remember a time when I was probably year seven, year eight, I got on the bus and uh, sat down those seats where you know, you're across from other people, so fairly exposed. And I thought, what's that smell? That's disgusting. Oh, someone's trodden in poo. It's me. Do you reckon I can hide it and get to school so I'm covering it? And as I brought my foot across to try to cover it, so I says, push you! Oh, push it! stinks, it stinks. The bus driver hears, Arr! get off, get off the bus, wipe your foot. And so there I am wiping my foot with everyone on the bus looking at me, people yelling stuff out the windows. And I'm all right. It hasn't damaged me in, in, in any way. It's not like from that day forward, I've always had to walk looking at the ground, scanning, <laughs> scanning in case I trod on something. Some have moments of glory. Some have moments of anti-glory. Some of us have both. Jesus has a moment of glory. Verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His hour, his moment, his time has come. Now, glory is one of those strange words that you sort of know what it means, but if someone said, could you define it, you'd go, well, I'm not sure. Glory means splendor, magnificence, majesty, weightiness. That's glory. What's Jesus' moment of glory? God the Son come to earth as a man. What's his moment of splendor, of magnificence, of majesty? You know, think of the Olympians' moment of glory. She crosses the finish line first. She stands on the podium. She receives the gold medal around her neck. All the media of the world are covering it. Glory. Or the footy captain's moment of glory wins the grand final. His team ringing around him, screaming in victory. His wife and kids running across the paddock to give him a hug. A sea of adoring fans roaring in rapture. The media capturing it all. Glory. The celebrity musician's moment of glory. Standing on the stage, performing to hundreds of thousands, they have them in the palm of their hand. They know every word of their song. They're singing along with them. They love them. They adore them. They're fixated on them. Glory. 
What is Jesus' moment of glory? God has come amongst us. God is here. What is his moment of splendor and magnificence and majesty when they shine the brightest? Verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Verse 32. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says that his ultimate moment of glory is his death. His profound death in sacrificial love for others and for his Father. Do you see how jarring this is to everything our world esteems as glory? To everything our natural human mind thinks of as splendor and magnificence. This is just not our instinct at all. Come back with me and look a bit at the context of what Jesus says here. In verses 20 to 22, John reports that some Greeks, which probably just means Greek speakers, who are present at the Jewish Passover, want to meet Jesus. These non-Jews, Gentiles, people from the nations, want to see Jesus. Now, they're sympathetic to Judaism. You can see that because they're at the Passover. Perhaps they're even God-fearers, participating in the Passover as much as they're able. And somehow they've heard about Jesus. They want to come to him and see him. And so they approach Philip, possibly because Philip has a Greek name and these are Greek people from the nations or Greek speakers from the nations beyond. And they ask Philip if he can introduce them to Jesus. Philip tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip together go tell Jesus. Now, we never hear what happened to these Greek speakers. We don't even know if they ever got to meet Jesus. We presume they're in the crowd who get to hear what he says in the next little bit. But we don't ever hear about them again. But for Jesus, this is a profound moment. This is a turning point. See, to us, or at least to me, it looks like a nothing moment in his life. A little, a little group of Greek speakers come up to see Jesus. People are coming up to see Jesus all the time. A nothing moment. But not for Jesus. For Jesus, this is the signal that the last moment is upon him. That the times have reached their fulfilment. That now is the time for the salvation of the nations of the earth. See, as Jesus sees this small group of Greek speakers, this small group of people from the nations coming to him, he sees it as the signal that now is the time for salvation to break beyond the Jews to the nations of the earth. And you can see that this is a profound moment for Jesus because in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. And if you've been tracking through John's gospel, you have noticed a number of times through John's gospel, the hour or my hour comes up. We've got a few of them on the screen. You can see in the early part of John's Gospel, it consistently says, my hour has not yet come, says Jesus. His hour has not come. His hour had not come. But then we come to our passage. The hour has come. The hour has come. The hour has come. This passage is the turning point of John's Gospel. The hour has come. The Passover festival will now be the last week of Jesus' life. From John 13 to the end will be the last night of Jesus' life. The moment for Jesus to be glorified in his death has come. Now, it's not just in his death that Jesus is glorified. 
He is also glorified in his resurrection and his ascension to exaltation. He's exalted by not just being lifted up on the cross to die, but lifted up on the cross through the cross to be exalted as the ruler of all things. It's a bit of a package. Death, resurrection, exaltation. In these, he's glorified. But, 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 the heart and core of the glorification of Jesus is his death, as we saw right through the passage. His death on the cross is the prime focus. It's in his painful, shameful, humiliating death that we see the beating heart of the glory of God in Christ. Even the Greek word lifted up, verse 32, has a dual meaning. The Apostle John makes very clear in verse 33 that lifted up describes the kind of death he was going to die, lifted up on a cross to die. Jesus lifted up in death. But lifted up can and often is used to mean exalted. Lifted up in glory, in exaltation. See, it's in Jesus being lifted up that he's being lifted up. It's Jesus being lifted up in death on a cross that Jesus is being lifted up in glory. Imagine you meet the richest person in the world. don't know who that is, but the richest person in the world, and they say to you, let me show you my most precious treasure. Let me show you the very heart of my wealth. What are you expecting them to show you? A priceless ancient artefact. Satoshi Nakamoto's secret Bitcoin wallets. The lost tiara of the last Russian czars, bejeweled. And what are you expecting them to show you? Something incredible, something that's going to blow your mind. What if God said to you, let me show you me at my most glorious. Let me show you the heart of my glory and splendor. What's he going to show you? Jesus hanging on a cross dying. The moment of his shining splendor is his death, his death in love for people and for his Father. Now, why? Why is Jesus' death so glorious? How does hanging bloodied, naked, asphyxiating to death under the curse and judgment of God show Jesus' splendor and magnificence and majesty? Well, it's because of what it achieves and what this reveals about him. What it achieves and what this reveals about him. Jesus' death is glorious firstly because of what it achieves. What does his voluntary death achieve? Well, the background to this is the title that Jesus uses for himself in verse 23. The Son of Man. A strange title that nobody used for themselves back then. Nobody does today either. But Jesus used it for himself to bring to mind Daniel 7, which we had read earlier. That passage. Daniel 7 is about a man, which is what son of man means. The son of a man is a man. Daniel 7 is one about one that looks like a human who comes into the presence of God and receives from God all authority to reign and rule in all glory and splendor forever. And Jesus in his ministry repeatedly uses this title for himself to say, I am that one. I am the one who is going to come on the clouds of heaven to receive absolute rule of all nations and to bring final judgment, to receive authority and glory and sovereign power. The one who is going to be worshipped by all nations and to rule forever and ever and ever. And so with that background in mind, you can see that in verse 31, Jesus says that that time is right now. The Son of Man has come to do these very things. Verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. 
Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus will judge the world, will destroy all evil that opposes him, including destroying Satan and sin and death. He will draw all kinds of people to himself in salvation under his rule. Jesus is the son of man who is coming into his absolute and glorious rule, his glorification. But how does he do this? How does he achieve it? By his death. Look at verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is sharing a general principle about living in the world, verse 24, but it's first and foremost about him. Jesus is the kernel of wheat that falls down to the ground and dies, and from his death comes forth a multitude of life. I don't know much about farming, don't know much about wheat, but apparently you get a head of wheat, and in the head of wheat there are multiple heaps and heaps of seeds, kernels. If one of those seeds, kernels, falls to the ground in death, then it produces a new plant. And from that new plant, a new head with multiple seeds, which produces more plants and more plants and more plants. From death springs forth multiple life. The principle is seen in Jesus' death. His death produces a multitude of life. It's by dying that Jesus makes it possible for us to be right with God, to be saved, to come to life in God eternally, to come to life. And for that message to spread across the globe and across the centuries more and more so that more and more the nations come to salvation. Jesus dies that we might live. God the Son dies under the just wrath and judgment of God that we deserve so that we can receive eternal life that we don't deserve. And the three things referred to in verses 31 and 32 are all achieved by his death. The first thing achieved, verse 31, is that Jesus' death brings the world to judgment. The final judgment of the world that destroys all evil occurs at the cross. Oh yes, it won't be until Jesus returns that the result of the final judgment enacted at the cross will come to its culmination where all things will be made right at Jesus' second coming. But the cross of Jesus is the decisive moment where the Son of Man judges the world. See, for those who put their trust in Jesus, hanging on the cross, the judgment they deserve falls on Him, not on them. Just judgment is done in its entirety for those who have faith in Him. But for those who reject Jesus and His death on the cross, their condemnation remains upon them. And they will experience this condemnation in full when Jesus returns. At the cross, the Son of Man destroys all evil and opposition and brings just judgment upon all people. Second thing achieved, also verse 31. By his death, Jesus destroys the power of Satan over humanity. Whether you believe it or not, there is a great malevolent evil out there seeking to destroy you eternally. Satan, called the prince of this world in this passage. But the prince of this world is driven out by Jesus' death. And the word driven out is, is, is cast out, exercised, dri- exorcised, driven out, not exercised. You know. <laughs> exorcised. The, this is the great exorcism of the New Testament. The driving out of Satan once and for all achieved by the cross of Jesus. Because what is Satan's great power over us? 
It's his power to accuse us, to say before God, look, guilty sinner, deserving of judgment. God cast your judgment upon them and condemn them. But the cross deals with our sin, cleanses us totally. So there is no more guilt to pay. We are utterly forgiven. And so Satan's power over us is gone. We are forgiven and free by Jesus' death. Third thing achieved in his death, verse 32, Jesus draws people from all the nations of the earth into a relationship with himself, which is salvation. I take it all people is all kinds of people. Jesus draws people to himself through his death on the cross because that's where our offense is dealt with. That's where we can be reconciled back to God and drawn back into relationship with God. And this is really the answer to those Greek speakers who wanted to see him, who wanted to talk to him, who wanted to come to Jesus. The answer is, by the cross, all people will be drawn to himself. The nations of the earth will come to him through his death. Do you see? Jesus' death is glorious because of what his death achieves. On the cross, Jesus is the Son of Man being raised up to rule with authority and glory for all time. Glorification in his death. But it's a death that brings eternal life to us. It's a death that takes the judgment we deserve as sinners. It's a death that destroys the power of Satan over us. It's a death that defeats sin and death for us. It's a death that draws us people from all the nations into salvation. And it's a death that brings glory ultimately to his Father. Jesus' death is glorious because of what it achieves. But one more step. Take one more step with me to the very heart of things. All this is glorious because of what it reveals about him. This is glorious because of what it shows about him, which is his utter and incredible goodness and love. His utter and incredible goodness and love. The death of Jesus reveals to the universe God's perfect and beautiful loving goodness like nothing else. Did you notice all the things that Jesus achieved by his death are for our salvation, ultimately for the glory of his Father? On the cross, we see God's profound goodness and love displayed for all the universe to see, his glory. Look at the unimaginable cost, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, as for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is overwhelmed, troubled, terrified. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That's what he wants, to be saved from his hour of glory, because his hour of glory is his hour of death. Not merely the physical agony of the suffering on the cross, but the spiritual agony of standing under the wrath of God and bearing the judgment we deserve for our sins. But Jesus says, no, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wants to be saved from death, but he wants something else more, and that is to save us humans and to glorify and honour his Father. And a voice from heaven thunders that he has been and is being and will be glorified by Jesus' sacrificial death. The death of Jesus on the cross is a moment of glory, is the profound, ultimate moment of glory, because this is the moment that in Jesus we see the godness of God most clearly. We see the goodness and love of God shine forth in their most full. In today's world, how do you see what people think of as their moments of glory? One of the great paces you can see it is on social media. 
Let me show you my moment of glory. Social media is crying out to us all the time. World, world, post something. Show us your moments of glory. And so the guy with his shirt off looking in the mirror, flexing, takes the picture, posted. Look at my body. Moment of glory, everyone. Or the lady dressed up, nice makeup. Look at my beauty. Moment of glory, everyone. Look at my car. Moment of glory. Look at my happy family playing together. Everything's perfect. Moment of glory. Look at my boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Look at my amazing holiday. Look at the incredible food I'm eating in this incredible location, living my best life. Look at how successful my kids are. Moment of glory, moment of glory, moment of glory. God, God, let's post something about you. Show us your moment of glory. This is our God, who in loving goodness dies under his own just judgment for you and me. The truest glory. It's interesting that back in Exodus, when Moses asked to see God's glory, and God's glory graciously grants that Moses will just get a glimpse of his glory, what it is that God shows Moses? What does God show Moses? Well, it isn't his mighty power, though that definitely makes God glorious. It isn't his vast, angelic warrior armies, though that makes God glorious too. It isn't God's great wealth, though that's part of God's glory. It isn't that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-present, all-competent, though these are highly significant parts of the glory of God, his splendor, his majesty. What is the core? What's the very heart of God's glory? What does God show Moses? His loving goodness, his character of compassion, Mercy, sovereignty, justice, faithfulness. See, the glory of God is his name, his character, who he is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with love and faithfulness, full of forgiveness and justice. The core of God's glory is that he is perfectly and beautifully good and loving. And if Jesus is God, come amongst us as a man, then what would you expect to see in Jesus? the perfect and beautiful loving goodness of God displayed. And so why is his death on the cross so glorious? Why is this his moment of glory? Because in his death, the very character of God is displayed for all the universe to gaze upon forever. The perfectly and beautiful loving goodness of God. His compassion and justice and goodness and love and forgiveness and mercy radiate from the cross. And so as he hangs on the cross, he is crowned in all glory as he dies naked and alone and in agony. If you have the eyes to see it, the eyes of faith opened by the Holy Spirit, then you almost cannot look upon the cross because it is so blindingly bright with the glory of God's utter goodness and love. Imagine with me um, a lamp. A, a spherical lamp, and um, it, it's got it's on, so it's shining with a light, beautiful radiant light. But you stick on it a whole bunch of pieces of duct tape, so little squares of duct tape stuck all over it, stuck all over it, stuck all over it, so the light is hidden. Now, in this illustration, God is the lamp, which is terrible. God is not an inanimate object, but God is the lamp. The radiance, that the light that shines from the lamp is the glory of God that has always been shining and cannot help but shine forever and ever and ever. But it's hidden from us. 
We can't see it unless God in his grace to us reveals it to us. And that's the unfolding story of the Bible. As God reveals himself to humanity bit by bit, piece by piece, dealing with humanity as recorded in the Bible, pieces of his glory are revealed for us to see, like tearing pieces of duct tape off the lamp. The bright shining light of the glory of God that was hidden to us is slowly being exposed. And so, God reveals himself in creation. The glory of God shining forth. God reveals his glory in the way that he deals with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God's glory shining forth. The way he makes and keeps his promises to Abraham. The way he saves the nation of Israel, the Passover, through the Red Sea, making them into a nation giving them the law, the promises, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the promises, the prophecies, the, all these pieces of duct tape being torn away from the lamp as we see more and more of who God is, who God is in all his splendor and glory as his character shines forth. And then Jesus comes and the ripping intensifies. It accelerates, rip, 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 as more and more of who God is and the depths of who God is are revealed in Jesus, the glory of God come amongst us as a man. But it's at the cross, at the cross, that the lamp just has the remaining duct tape incinerated, just blown off, as the blinding light of the full glory of who God is shines, exposed for all the universe to see. In his death, resurrection and exaltation, but particularly in his death, because that is the moment you see the utter goodness and utter love of God, Godness to its fullest extent. His incredible goodness and faithfulness and love and mercy and justice and forgiveness shining there on the cross for all to see. It's not that on the cross you switch the lamp on, there was no glory and suddenly there's glory. No, no, the glory of God has always been, is increasingly being revealed. But, but the, the moment of epic glorification, when God's glory bursts forth and shines its most glorious, is as Jesus dies on the cross. And seeing this is key to our salvation. To see the glory of God in Jesus, to see the glory of God in his death is key to salvation. In verse 34, the crowd have a question for Jesus and you think, fair enough. At the time, it would have been pretty hard to understand what Jesus was saying, who he is, is he Messiah, is he Son of Man, how do those things come together? But Jesus has an encouragement and a challenge for them. Verse 35. You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus is the light, the glory and truth of God revealed. And Jesus says, believe in the light while you have the light. Become children of the light so that you belong to the light. Don't reject the light. Don't turn away from the light. Trust Jesus while you have and you belong to him and his Father. See, if you reject the light, then you remain blind to the glory of God and you stumble around in the darkness of this life not knowing what it's really about and ultimately you're cut off from God and his glory forever. The key to salvation is Jesus. I think Jesus is saying here, stick with me. Stay in the light. Even if you don't understand everything, stay in the light. Because in him and his death, the glory of God is displayed. You step away from this light and there's only darkness left for you. Now, what does all this mean for me? 
What's my moment of glory? Well, did you see earlier in the passage the consistency that is to be between Jesus' life and the Christian's life? How Jesus lived and how we are to live. Verse 24, we saw as a principle about living in this world, but also most fundamentally about Jesus, perfectly embodied by him. And in verse 25, Jesus makes clear what it will mean for us to rightly respond to him. Our life is to be like his life. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Just like Jesus dies to bring eternal life to others, we too must die to ourselves to receive eternal life from Jesus. Just as Jesus didn't love his life so much in this world that he hung onto it, but instead gave it up to bring salvation to many, so we too are not to love our lives so much in this world that we hang on to them, but rather to give them up so that we might have salvation in Jesus. And give them up in the sense of, my life is no longer my own, I now belong to you, Jesus. I'd to die to self-rule, to self-governing, and to let Jesus rule. Because Jesus says, if we love our lives in this world, we'll lose eternal life. But if we hate our lives in this world, we gain real life, eternal life. So give up control, give up self-rule, give up being king of your own life, and give it all to Jesus, that he might rule. If you love your life in this world and all the things that this world has to offer, so much so that you step away from it, you lose eternal life. But if you let go of this world and all it holds out to you and take hold of Jesus, you will have eternal life. And Jesus models it for us in this very passage, doesn't he? What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. The agony of wanting to go the way of loving his life and keeping it in this world. But then he says, no, it's for this very reason I came, Father, glorify your name. Jesus chose not to love his life in this world, but gave it up for us, and we to do the same. Verse 26 gives a little more clarity on what this looks like. Whoever serves me must follow me. We're to be Jesus' servants who follow him, serve him, living for him and not for ourselves, following him, going the way he went. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a very helpful one. Lots of people conceive of of being a Christian, becoming a Christian like this. You're in your car, you're speeding down the highway of life. It's wide, it's open, it's free. You steer where you want to steer, you swerve where you want to swerve, you go where you want to go. It's all open for you. You're in control. But then you're driving along and you see Jesus standing on the side of the road and and you take a second look and think, wow, he's, he's very compelling. And the more you look, the more you think, wow, he is who he says he is. He is the one who is resurrected from the dead. He is God come amongst us. He is the rule of all things. His death does mean I can be forgiven and brought back into relationship with him and his father forever. And so you, you pull the car over and you say, Jesus, please forgive me. I want you as part of my life. And you open the passenger door and Jesus jumps in. And from that moment forward, wherever you go, whatever you do in your life, Jesus is with you. Now that's not becoming a Christian. That's not being a Christian. Rather, you're speeding down the highway of life, swimming here, there, going wherever you want to go, you're in control. You see Jesus on the side of the road. He's very compelling. He is who he says he is. He is God. He is the Lord. He is the one who forgives you. Pull over. And you say, Jesus, please forgive me. 
jump in the driver's seat. You get out, you let him in the driver's seat and you sit in the passenger seat and you say, where are we going, Jesus? What do you want to do? And so what's my moment of glory? Well, in one sense, it's totally the wrong question, isn't it? It's not about me. It's not about my glory. I exist to serve. I exist to follow. I exist to honour, to bring glory to the glorious one, Jesus. It's about his glory and not mine. It's about making much of him and his splendour and majesty and beauty and not making much of me. And particularly about drawing everyone's attention to his moment of crowning glory. His supreme act of loving goodness. Dying on the cross to save sinners and honour his father. What's my moment of glory? Wrong question really. I don't exist for my glory. I exist for the glory of Jesus and his father. But in another sense... There are moments in our frailty, in our weakness, in Christ's strength, when we are becoming the person who Jesus is increasingly remaking us to be, as we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And it's glorious in Jesus' sight. So in this sense, when am I being most glorious, most splendorous, most majestic, most magnificent? It's when I'm being like my Lord. It's when I turn away from selfishness to serve him. It's when I turn away from my desires to follow him. It's when I, like my Lord, sacrifice myself in love for the good of others. When, like my Lord, I die so that others might live. And when it's all not about me and my glory, but about the glory of Jesus and his Father. See, what are your moments of glory, of splendour? If moments of glory, true glory, could be captured, posted on social media, it would never be you posting them about yourself. (laughs) Because as soon as you're focused on yourself, thinking about yourself, it's not glorious anymore. If moments of true glory were to be captured, posted on social media, it would be others catching you in the act of loving, sacrificial service without you knowing. Here's my husband cleaning up the kid's vomit and no one knows. Moment of glory, according to Jesus. Here's my friend packing up the chairs when everyone else has left and gone home. He doesn't know I'm here. Moment of glory, according to Jesus. Here's my friend giving their time to talk with the person that no one else in the world ever seems to have time to. Glorious in Jesus' sight. Here's my Christian sister praying in her room, crying out to the Lord for the salvation of her friends and family. Glorious. Here's the inside of the heart of my Christian brother and the worry and the heavy burden he carries as he watches his Christian friends starting to walk away from Christ. Glorious. Now, you can't capture that stuff on social media, can you? Because it's, it's heart, it's motive, it's inside. It's hidden when no one else sees. But we're most glorious when we live for Christ and when we die to ourselves so that others might live. We live gloriously when the possibility of really enjoyable sin just drops in our lap, falls right in front of us, and we could take it up and no one would know. But we turn away because we serve our Lord Jesus. We honour and we love him and we want him to get the glory. Glorious.
When you enter the conversation after church and you've got big and difficult things going on for you and you're churning inside, but you start to chat to the person and you realise they've got difficulties as well. And you intentionally, purposely put away thinking about yourself and you focus on them and you listen and you engage and you think about how you might care for them because the Lord has cared for you in this way. It's glorious. When you know that speaking up as a follower of Jesus is going to be pretty costly, ridicule, anger, isolation, discomfort, but you speak anyway because you want to honour the Lord Jesus and you're not living for life in this world, but for life with him in the world to come. It's glorious. On a Saturday night when you set your alarm as you do most weeks because you want to get up early, because you want to get to church early, because you want to serve God and his people by practicing the music, by welcoming people, by preparing to teach the kids, by setting up the place and blowing the... Glorious. When you give your money to gospel ministry sacrificially, because you're not living for this world but eternity, because you know that your financial sacrifice is so that others might live forever. It's glorious. When times are just really, really terrible and tough and painful and sad and dark, but in the midst of all this, you just keep looking to Jesus as your help, as your strength, and hanging on to the promise that he has made of the life to come. Glorious. When you stand in church and you sing and, and, and you almost can't get enough volume out your mouth because your heart is so full with the, the glory of Christ that you long for the universe to join you in singing about the glory of the good and loving God as he dies on the cross for us. It's glorious. When you're coaching your kids and you come into a hard situation and you could encourage them to go the easy way or the Jesus way. And you encourage them to go the Jesus way. Because you really believe that to serve and follow Jesus and to give up life in this world is to be honoured by God and receive eternal life. It's glorious. And all these things are glorious in God's sight because they're not about us and our glory. They're about God and his glory and sacrificing ourselves in love for others so they might live and live forever. That's the sort of life that God honours. Have a look in finishing, just at verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Let's pray. Our oh, Father, we praise you for the radiance of your glory, just seen most vividly and brilliantly and beautifully in the death of your Son on the cross, your loving goodness on display for the whole universe to see forever and ever. And please, Lord, change us. Uh, make our lives so that they're not about us but about you and your glory and please enable us to follow and serve your son to die to ourselves so that others might have life in Jesus forever and we pray this in his name. Amen.